Happy holidays and Merry Christmas from the Locked on NBA crew. This week, some of the guys are going to take some time with their family. They're going to refresh and be ready to roll here shortly. So we won't be going every single day of the week. But I have a special guest. ESPN's Kevin Pelton and I sat down in Portland over the weekend. And here's our conversation for Locked on NBA. You are locked on the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. It is your happy holidays, Merry Christmas edition of Locked On NBA. David Locke with Kevin Pelton, ESPN's numbers, genius, trade, breakdown, extraordinaire. Congratulations, by the way, for the Dual Brooks release of trade of what the difference between Marshawn Brooks versus Dylan Brooks really is. That was really, it was really fabulously well done. Uh, thanks. That was a, that was a fun night last Friday in the Moda Center following all of that. So I give you credit. I laughed very hard. Um, I think I know your humor well enough to know that you thought it was really funny. And I was with you 100%. I, I feel like I was in on that pretty early. Like that was a possibility. I sent a text to a, a mutual friend of ours, actually, suggesting that that might have been the case. And then it slowly trickled out. Wow. How did you know this? Well, just the the reporting, the fact that Memphis was so insistent that it was Marshawn and everybody else was so in, insistent that it was Dylan, like it's some, it, it quickly jumped to, oh, crap, they actually got the, the players wrong. All right, let's talk about this season. Um, there's a lot of different elements that are going on. Um, the feels to me that this, the feeling I have on this season that jumps out, my primary one, is that the teams are packed closer together. And so my feeling a little bit is that the schedule used to impact margin and is now impacting outcome. I don't know if that's really true, but it does feel as though, you know, whether Dallas is playing the Clippers or the Jazz are playing the Grizzlies or the Kings are playing the Thunder, these teams feel also very similar that who's on more rest or not rest seems to be dictating outcomes more than it feels like it used to. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably more inclined to think that if you're in the Western Conference than in the East, because there's not really an abnormal amount of parity in the East. There is this great stratification between the top four or five teams in that conference and the the many dregs of that conference. So, you know, I, I, league-wide, I'm not sure if it's as unusual as it looks if we focus on the Western Conference. But yes, the the closer teams are to each other, the more impact you're going to see from rest and home court advantage. So I've spend my time with the Utah Jazz. And um, as the time of recording, we're still a few games below 500. And we have taken half of our plane flights already this season. The schedule has been something I've never experienced in 10 years traveling, 11 years traveling in the league, in 25 years covering the league. How much of an impact does it really have? I mean, it's hard for me to say that particular aspect of it, the the way that... uh, you know, the, the travel was sort of compressed into the first part of the season and what sort of cumulative effect that might have. That one's tough for me to answer. I would say, though, that, you know, sometimes schedule gets treated as sort of like this mystical thing is like, well, we can't even talk about these teams because they have two different schedules. Like college basketball, college football, these sports have existed with much wider stretch, schedule strength differences than you can ever possibly see in the NBA, even at this point in the season. And we still have a pretty good idea of who those, which teams are good in those, those sports. And we can adjust for the strength of schedule and pick out teams that are successful because of the fact that they're beating that weak schedule by more than they should, or conversely that, you know, they are doing reasonably well against a good schedule. So I, 
I consider this more of a solved issue in terms of we can just take the point differential for teams, adjust that for schedule strength, and get a pretty good sense for how they're playing, even against different schedules. I think there's an element to this of, and I've used the golf analogy, that if you're playing the same golf course and it's really, really hard, and you play like 15 straight rounds on that, you'll start to begin to fiddle with your drive, your swing, and you'll fiddle with your chipping, and you'll think you're no good. Whereas if somewhere in the middle of those 15 rounds, you got five rounds on a goat track, where even if you push the ball a little bit right, you still had a line to the green and you feel good about yourself. I think there's a level where the games against the least good teams are really important to your psyche. And I think that matters a huge amount. Oklahoma City, as we're recording this, has played nine of them already. Um, Denver's played eight of them already. The Lakers have played eight of them. And I think that allows you to feel good about yourself and move to the next game in a way that is, is more important than some other games. Yeah, I mean, that theory is hard for me to disprove. I mean, I think one thing you could look at maybe is, you know, if we look retroactively at the schedule strength, teams that had a relatively easy schedule early or a relatively hard schedule early, you know, which of those teams, when you have a big enough sample that the overall quality is going to be the same among those groups, which of those teams ended up better? Although the one thing you would have to worry about in terms of overall quality is one thing that I think people often forget about schedule strength. Besides for conference, the most inter- important determinant of your strength of schedule at the end of the season is how good your own team is because you can't play yourself. Well, Phoenix will play the hardest schedule in the league this year. That, that is guaranteed. All right, so but I do. I think this is it. Let's take Denver and Utah because I think this is really interesting. Denver's schedule to start the years was pretty soft. Utah's was brutal. Denver's Denver may not play a team below 500 after the All-Star break. Like, it's crazy what they have after the All-Star break. It, I think now Washington's not good, and so they have a few good easy games in there that we didn't expect. Uh, the same way Utah's schedule, we did not realize that Sacramento and Dallas were going to be as good as they were when the year came out. What's your thought on whether it's advantageous to be soft early or soft late, hard early or hard late? I mean, you guys would be a bit of a counterexample last year in the Jazz in terms of, you know, it wasn't totally about the schedule, but the schedule got much softer in the second half of the season. And the fact that, you know, the Jazz were out of the playoff race is of the midway point of the season with Rudy Gobert's injury being a contributing factor there didn't really prevent those feelings of positivity and and self-confidence from developing in the second half. It's interesting, though. So when the year started, you thought Utah, I believe, was what? two A game better than two games better than Denver? Uh, that sounds about right. I mean, I think that's kind of universal. Yeah. If you ask anyone right now, you'd say Denver's much better than Utah. Yeah. I'm not. Denver's been really good. And I do think that if Utah had Denver's schedule, I don't think they'd quite have Denver's record. Denver's been that good, particularly with the injuries Denver's had. It's really impressive. I do think if Denver has Utah's schedule, they might have Utah's record. Yeah, I mean... You know, they have been better when you adjust for schedule so far this season. Now, the one thing you got to do when you're projecting forward that, that people people often don't do is also incorporate preseason expectations because, you know, and we've talked about this in the past. Everyone's always searching for, hey, what's the point in the season where this year's results become meaningful? And there are certain points where, you know, you can see that they start to become less variable. They're less noisy. But there's never a point at which you take just this year's results, and that's a better predictor than including the preseason expectations or last year's results, however you're going to do it, into your projection for air going forward. Even at the end of the regular season, that's still a useful thing. So the gap between Denver and Utah is probably not quite as big as it appears even once you adjust for the schedule. All right, let's. Uh, there's so much talk this year about 
I think two fact, three factors: pace, uh, everyone shooting the three, and uh, the freedom of movement initiative from the NBA. What do we know that's actually different? So, if you look at it compared to where we were, where we are now, as compared to where we were at the end of the last regular season, you know, scoring is up about. 3.7%, like almost 4% per, on a per game basis. And of that, about two thirds of the increase can be attributed to pace. Again, year over year, about one third to offensive efficiency. Now, we also know that scoring efficiency tends to improve over the course of the season. Pace tends to slow down slightly as the year goes on. So I think it's it's possible that we could get to like eventually a 50-50 split in terms of those two things. But, you know, so far a lot of it is being driven by the pace. So efficiency is not up. It is up, but it's just not up as, as dramatically as pace is. And do you think efficiency, because offense gets better as the year goes on, is going to be much more up by the end of the year? I mean, we probably will end up with this being the most efficient offensive season in NBA history. Is that because there are more threes, or is that is pace leading to efficiency? <laughs> well, that's a that's a tougher question to answer because uh, uh, teams that play faster are more efficient offensively. We do know that if you get into your sets quicker, if you have more transition opportunities, since those are more efficient than half court opportunities, all of those things are contributing. You know, I wrote a piece a few years ago, kind of asking. So, if teams are getting so much better in terms of shot selection, they're trading out these long twos for threes. Why isn't efficiency getting better? Because at that point, it had been kind of hovering at the same place for, you know, basically back to the 0405 when the hand checking started being enforced and the seven seconds or less suns and all that. And my conclusion was, you know, if you look at it historically, teams are uh, always offensive rebounding less. They're always getting back in transition, more favoring that. Uh, there, there had been at that point many fewer free throws. Like last year was the all-time low in terms of free throw rate since the the shot clock came in, which I guess makes it not all-time, but the the modern low for free throw rate. And so all of those, if you didn't have the improved shot selection, were probably going to mean that scoring would have been way down the way that it trended downward throughout the late '90s and early 2000s. Uh, and that at that point, kind of like the improved shot selection was saving those things from happening. And now I think it's gotten to the point where, you know, it, it has overpowered those and made the league more efficient. It's interesting. Talking to coaches for every game, you get some really interesting insight. I'll add, I'll add on to that in a second. We continue with our Christmas edition with ESPN's Kevin Felton. To, to the point of what you were just talking about, uh, Two, well, one I want to touch on mid-range from a comment from Steve Kerr, but Mike D'Antoni basically just said, you know what, this league's so good with coaches that they all worked on the offseason, how to deal with our switching, and we can't switch anymore. That, you know, these, these coaches are so good at what they're doing, and offense that they have now come up with an answer, we have to alter what we're doing defensively. Um, and then when I talked to Steve Kerr about that, he said it took a little while, but he kind of reminisced back about the fact from an offensive standpoint that for a long time people were trapping Steph and then Draymond was getting his four on three on the rest of the league. He's like, Draymond got to do that for a long time. We haven't had one of those in a, you know, no one's done that in a long time against us. So there is an incredible amount to this of which this coaching evolution takes place. And these coaches are brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
I don't I don't completely agree with D'Antoni. I think that their defensive problems go beyond switching, although they have been, I think, a little bit better as they've started to ramp that back down. And, of course, the personnel is a factor there. Uh, probably a little bit of an overstated one, but James Ennis is not quite as effective a switch defender as Trevor Ariza was. And, you know, to whoever's in the Luke Mute spot, they've gotten some good minutes from Daniel House lately, and he's got that strength that makes him a good switch defender. But, you know, they're, they're not quite the same team. I, I don't know if I buy that they've been figured out because at the same time, the Warriors have been switching for many years, and no one would say that you know teams have figured out the Warriors switching. No, they're defense. not 12th defensively. Yeah, but that's that's an effort in a Draymond Green health situation. I think, you know, come playoff time, do we think that this Warriors team isn't going to be good defensively? I don't know, actually. I'm not as certain that they're going to be as good defensively this year. As I, I still think I'm certain they're going to win the West. Okay, don't misunderstand this comment. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not. I'm not certain about that. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, f- life is not that certain. Okay. Thank you, Mister Probability. But 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 like you know, but I'm not certain that they're that they have this f- switch to flip defensively that they used to have. Uh, I, I, there's too many too many things in their defense that are a little bit wrong. Um, they're 20th in the league in allowing threes, which is really high. Uh, and Draymond doesn't may not be right. I think all those things are true. None of those things you listed were teams figuring out their switching defense. Right, but you said to me, don't you think that they're going to figure it out defensively? That's, that's true. But but to my larger point. Okay, so you went somewhere else. I only answered what you said. <laughs> but though, I, I, th- I don't think their personnel is quite as strong defensively as it, as it was in their prime. Iguodala is older. Sean Livingston's older. Draymond's older. They're older than we think of the Warriors being because of the fact that they're relatively young for a team that has gone to the finals four years in a row. Speaking of old, as we record this, Chris Paul has done something to his hamstring. We don't know exactly what. Strain. Um, Strain, we do know that? Okay. Uh, We don't know how long, I guess, he's going to be out. I saw them the other night. I know they're on their revival. They're not on revival. James Harden is having a five-game stretch before they lost to Miami that was as good as any four or five game stretch any players ever had in the history of the NBA. Now we'll get into a discussion about how you judge per game numbers here in a second. I actually was left watching them recently and thinking they're in, I actually left thinking they're in a lot of trouble. Like they played the jazz, the jazz shot 30 something percent. James Harden had to score 47 points for them to win on in their own building. They had to beat the lake to beat the Lakers. James Harden had to go 50 triple double. Like, I don't know. I mean, it seems crazy to say this, but and now when Chris Paul's hurt, the burden falls on Harden even more. I feel like they're really teetering on, and they have played they have played a harder schedule than some of the other teams. By the way, in fairness to them, yeah, I think Harden is not getting enough credit for what he's doing this season because you know even before that stretch, he was putting together basically a facsimile of his MVP campaign and not getting nearly the credit for it because of the fact that the Rockets Rockets record is so much weaker. And, you know, he probably bears some responsibility for their decline defensively. He, he probably hasn't quite been at the same level as last year, but offensively he's been just as good. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think like, we, we think of him as this guy who's so valuable in the regular season, but still when you talk about the best players in the league, his name never comes up in that discussion. And that might be a little unfair to him. I don't—yeah, I, I think he's one of the five or ten best offensive players the league's ever seen. Yeah, D'Antoni called him the best offensive player he's ever seen the other day, I think, right? That, that thing that happened recently, or maybe it just came up again. I mean, he's he's not. He's not the best offensive player in the league because Steph Curry's alive. But he's a really close 1A. And I understand how annoying he is for people to watch, but 
uh, I think a lot of that is the skills that he has in that. Yeah, did anything happen in your guys' game that they seemed to? Eighteen trips to the free throw line seemed to have a few people annoyed. All right, so Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich have both, in press conferences recently, talked about the value of the mid range. Are we having a mid range revival? Steve Kerr talked about I care about field goal percentage was his comment. He very specifically said field goal percentage, not effective field goal percentage, and then talked about the value of taking the ball out of the net defensively. Is there any level where we have a mid-range revival going on here? Oh, people want that to happen so badly, don't they? I mean, Pop mostly was talking about how he dislikes the three aesthetically, right? And he said that Pop, even when Pop his... actually had, honestly, in my interview with Pop, he made three or four comments that were just fundamentally not true to what's going on in the league. And it wasn't even analytics. It was that, like, the freedom of movement was all to go get more threes. Actually, freedom of movement has led to more shots at the rim more than anything else. Like, there were a bunch of those. It was really strange. You know, um... Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you, but so I don't. I was there for one of his whole "I hate the three routines," but yeah, I'm just reminiscing about you know uh, Tom Haverstrow when he was at ESPN wrote a piece about you know the the NBA's 30 year war against the three is over, and I think quoted Pop in there is talking about how much he disliked threes, and you know just at a point when his team was shooting a, a great number of them, you know, or at least a decent number of them relatively. So you know I think that there's you got to separate the the like personal feelings from how he's actually managing the team, and I I don't know that those are necessarily the same, but yeah I think there's always a case where because of the fact that the value of the three is so mathematically undeniable. Three is greater than two. People are always looking for, but what's the catch? And transition defense is something that's listed as a catch, uh, both in terms of, you know, the, your, your studio lower percentage, you're taking the ball, the other team is taking the ball out of the net less frequently, as Steve Kerr mentioned. Also, the long rebound idea that, that people talk about with threes. And then the notion that, you know, uh, it, in unguarded two, you still bet want an open two instead of a contested three. And none of these bear out statistically relative to the value of three being greater than two. I mean, Steve Kerr is not wrong. Defenses are better when they are playing off of a made shot than rather off of than off of a missed shot because that transition opportunity usually isn't there. The difference just isn't very big, and it's also counteracted by the fact that the more shots you miss, the more opportunities you have to get offensive rebounds and extend the possession. So, you know that you also have to factor that in when you're looking at what's the entire result of a possession with a three instead of a two. And the idea that uh, that three point three pound rebounds do tend to lead to like slightly better offense than mid range opportunities, but you know what actually is the worst in this regard. Uh, Seth Partnow, before he went to work for the Bucks, wrote about this for the Washington Post a few years ago, and I've been digging it up in response to questions like this. It's actually shots at the rim that you have the highest opponent. Uh, points per possession afterwards because if you miss those when the player is at the rim it makes it much more likely there's an odd number break going the other way but no one ever says hey we can't drive to the rim it might hurt our transition defense well i actually mine would be your missed transition opportunities it almost always feels like it's a transition opportunity back the other way 
Yes. Yeah. Any any of those situations where it's sort of a if you've got an advantage one way, then by definition, the other team's going to have the advantage, which is why the quote unquote four point swing, which is something that I figure probably irks you as much as it does me. No, you know, what's my biggest irk is when they talk about you can't foul the guy and have the clock stopped when you score. The clock stops (laughs) on a made basket of the NBA guys. I mean, there, there, there's the kernel in there because yes, if like you get a loose ball foul in that situation, and the other team heads all the way to the walks all the way up the court to the free throw line without spending any time moving the ball up the court, then that's a bad foul. But if a guy's going for a layup, you might as well foul him, make him miss the layup, make him make two free throws. The clock is stopping either way. Oh my gosh, it drives me bananas. When I said that I brought this up on the air, and Ron Boone got so mad at me, it was like like almost a legitimate fight. It was terrible. Uh, Where were we? Because I had something else I wanted to add on that. Oh, I have a whole theory on the psychology of the three. If we had mid-range shooting in the box score, and so it showed you what everybody shot in the mid-range or non-restricted area twos, then you never you, people would stop talking. Oh, look, they lo- they lost the game at the three point line. No, more often than not, you lose the game in the mid range. I have one hundred percent endorsed this idea because yes, you're looking at three point percentage versus shooting percentage on all twos, but not all twos are created equal. And you know, there's there's a theory that like you know the Rockets they they just want a three instead of a two. Like no, that's not their theory. Their theory is layups or threes. You can't leave the layups part of that out of the equation. And it's been harder to do with the Bucks. Because in their case, they're not getting layups. They're getting like eight Giannis dunks a game. It's interesting to watch this whole thing. And and what's really interesting is being somewhat embedded with a team, watching the psychology. I mean, when you you go six for 35 from three, it's hard to launch 35 threes the next night for these guys. And it's because of all these factors we're talking about. Can I give you my psychological theory to Kerr's point? I think that there is just something pleasant about the ball going through the basket. And so if you actually, if you ask people without like letting them do the math and really think about, would you rather have uh, five two-point shots or four three-point shots? They would rather have the more made baskets, even though it's less points. All right. So let's just stay there for a second. Let's say you made your five mid-range shots instead of your four threes, but you had eight misses instead of, you know, Whatever, I guess would be we have to be seven. Yeah, seven seven misses. How much is the value of the fact that you have one less miss? Uh, yeah, it's it's like maybe point one points per hundred possessions. I think it's it's not very it's not very large. Suffice it to say, it's not covering the the two full points that we just had. No. All right, we'll come back with more with Kevin Pelton as we continue on this holiday edition. Hope you're having a wonderful time with family and friends and taking an opportunity to hear some basketball conversation with us on the Locked On NBA part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hope you've grabbed a hold of Locked On NBA Net on Twitter. It is the feed of feeds, all of the experts of the Locked On Podcast Network on one feed. So you get the Locked On NBA Net and also Instagram account. Absolutely fabulous work going on there. A lot of question and answers with hosts, plus biggest stories. And on the stories, it's the biggest stories in 60 seconds. All at Locked On NBA Net. Is the three ball or something else causing wider variance in performance? You know, I haven't looked at this specifically year over year. What I can say is that 
it, as much as we like the, to connect the three with inconsistency, and that's probably true on some level, like all other things equal, the more threes you shoot, the more inconsistent you're going to be. It's that factor is probably swamped by the other factors that create randomness in performance, whether it's, you know, just just the actual statistical randomness uh, of that performance isn't always going to be the same or, you know, whatever else could be driving that at the team level. I mean, I'm covering a team that a week ago was through 10 games, 27th in the league in shooting through five games, second in the league in shooting and overall 13th in the league in shooting. And that literally were the numbers that were up at the time. It's all over the map. Well, it's also the number of like 20 point games on either end of the spectrum for the Jazz, seemingly alternating at one point in the schedule, uh, and, and I guess balancing out in terms of point differential. Yeah, but if you look at the teams that are the most inconsistent, there's not necessarily, you know, San Antonio now has, has surpassed Utah in terms of inconsistency after winning a bunch of blowouts. They shoot the fewest threes of anyone in the league. Yeah. So you wouldn't you wouldn't attribute it there, and it's not like the most consistent teams in the league. Conversely, are teams that necessarily have any particular trend. Uh, at the time I looked at this last week, it was Detroit was the most consistent team in the league by a wide margin, and they, which also is a reminder that consistency is not necessarily like we often use consistent and inconsistent when we're talking about players. It kind of becomes a synonym for good or bad, but consistency is ne- neither good nor bad in general. If you're an average team, how consistent you are doesn't really matter at all. You probably are going to lose some games you should have won and win some games you should have lost, and it's going to even out. Consistency is bad if you're a, is good if you're a good team because you want to kind of consistently be just a little, at least a little bit better than your competition. But conversely, if you're a bad team and if you're not thinking about Zion Williamson, then you actually want to be inconsistent because you know that one night that. Trey Young gets hot for the Atlanta Hawks, that's a night you're winning a game you otherwise probably should have lost on talent. And if you have the bad night and lose by 35, well, you were probably going to lose by 15 anyway. Interesting point. All right, I have one number that really stunned me this year when I was looking at stuff. Um, Wide open, catch and shoot, three-point shot. League average percentage. Do you know what it is? It's like 36. Yeah. Seems really low. Yeah, I mean, so the overall percentage in the league has, I think, was around 36 last year on all threes. So catch and shoot, by definition, must have been a little higher since those do tend to be better than, than uh, off-the-dribble threes. But so, I mean, but the wide, uh, the wide open catch and shoot three is only going in 36, 37% of the time. To me, either means the stats view number on NBA.com are wrong, which they have been on most inconsistent incredibly this year so maybe there's something wrong in this in this data um but that seemed i don't know it just that actually made me wonder like if there was some value to the mid-range like if i'm working this whole thing to get a wide open three like but but conversely it means that the contested threes are actually going in at a relatively higher rate than you would think and that then that's the argument it's never about the open three versus the open two no one no one in their right mind would argue that the open two is better than the open three their argument is always is over the contested three versus the open two and if contesting doesn't make it that big of a difference then you still prefer the contested three the psychology of this is incredible you talked about as a pod i think the other psychology is how much the mid-range leaving the mid-range two open and then someone makes it how much it even though your defense might have been right uh how much coaches then feel as though they have to adjust 
Yeah, it's because of the fact that it feels like it's some if if the other team makes a shot because of the fact that you know they they just kind of have beaten us. You know, okay, well, we can live with that. But if it's something that we have intentionally given up and it happens against us, that's it's not only like the external criticism, it's like the internal regret of it. All right, let's talk a few team things, though. We are recording this and it's going to be, you know, with a knowledge that some games will have taken place by the time we post it. Who is the of the five Eastern Conference team who does not get home court advantage? I think Philadelphia. I mean, their point differential is really weak. Their bench is is a uh, a liability after trading two starters for one in the Jimmy Butler trade, and we we've seen that come back to be an issue for them. Just as kind of you know, I expected at the time of the trade, uh, when they play really well, they can play with anyone because of the fact that they have three probably top twenty players in the league, maybe even top fifteen. I'm I'm maybe higher on Ben Simmons in that regard than most people, although probably lower on Joel Embiid because I'm lower on all centers in terms of their value. Um you know, they they're gonna have to add to that bench the mid season, but you know, the only reason that they're in that mix right now is because of the fact that they've won so many close games. If you look at their point differential, they're not anywhere close to the top four teams in the East. I don't know who Philly if their five will play um, but let's just assume for the sake of conversation that maybe it's Indiana. Um, will we have to have the other three playoff series in the first round of the Eastern Conference? <laughs> uh, Charlotte, I think, could give a team a run. I mean, they, that's a team, team that underperformed their point differential pretty considerably early in the season. I'm so glad the fifth best team in the Eastern Conference, sixth best team in the Eastern Conference, can host like four straight Western Conference teams and lose by 20 to all of them. It's been a rough stretch here for Kemba Walker. You get him in a seven-game playoff series. He could get hot. Anything could happen there. I'm not telling you on this. You're not fired up to see the Little Caesars Arena in the playoffs? Six, seven, eight in the East is an abomination. They would be 15, 16, and 17 in the West. Actually, you know what I'm excited about? What if the Brooklyn Nets make the playoffs? I predicted the Brooklyn Nets to make the playoffs. I, well, Not I, with Karis LeVert hurt, though, I'll tell you that. I mean, they were they were a sleeper of mine. I didn't go far as far as to actually straight up pick them into the, play, be the playoffs. I put in a bunch of caveats just in case it doesn't happen. Um, but they're like a, a really well-coached team, I think. Uh, they, they're, they're interesting to watch. I love the fact that Jared Dudley is making contributions out there, getting layups against the Lakers in the fourth quarter. That was, that was quite enjoyable to watch. And it would be fun to see if the, like, whatever fan base exists in Brooklyn got behind them because of the fact they'd be such a feel-good story. I mean, this was a team that, you know, a couple of years ago I wrote would, they were in a worse situation. They were a worse problem for the league. This must have been right after the, you know, Sam Hinkie was uh, kind of taken out of power than Philly ever was because of the fact that Philly was doing this with a plan and Brooklyn at that point had no plan and no hope. And in a remarkably short amount of time, Sean Marks and Kenny Atkinson have got them headed in the right direction. And they have the player that keeps me up at night more than any player in the league right now, D'Angelo Russell. There's just nothing I should like about him at all. And I just do for some reason, and I can't figure out what it is. I mean, he... He supplies the ability to create shots, and on a team that needs it, that's that's valuable. All right. Who do you feel comfortable voting off playoff island in the Western Conference? Phoenix. Okay, good. They've won four in a row when we're doing this conversation. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, I, I think probably I, – I, I'm curious who my second pick is going to be here now. Uh, it would have been San Antonio a week ago, and – like we said, they've they've blown out a few teams lately. 
I guess probably Dallas would be the next pick. Dallas has played nine games against the bottom seven teams in the league, and they're only four and five or five and four in those games. They're, they're the one team whose uh, good record seems to be inflated a bit. No, I, actually, I should have gone Sacramento over Dallas. I mean, great respect for what the Kings are doing this year. Incredible stuff from a team that no one had any expectations from whatsoever. But, uh, like, immediately once everyone, like, after they went into Dallas and won and everyone concluded, hey, like, the Kings are finally finally turning things around. Then they f- follow that up by losing back-to-back games by, like, 15-plus points. And that was that was kind of very Kings. Yeah, they're pretty good, though. They, uh, they're one of the most fascinating teams for me because, like, they just play so hard and at such a fast pace that it makes them very difficult to defend. And my first theory was that once people like adjusted to that, once that was on the scouting report, that teams would be able to take that away and they would come back to earth. And they 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 got through that period of time better than I expected. But you know, still, I think at some point, the, they're just not good enough as a half court offense to stay in this race. All right, any brilliant thought you want to leave me with? Brilliant thought I want to leave you with. Uh, I want to vent about something I tweeted about earlier this year, but I, I want to keep hammering home. Uh, there's a lot of times that you know people like, uh, understandably, I like to do this too. You go on Basketball Reference and you fire up, you know how. Got to get to this little conversation. Well, you, you teed me up anyway. Uh, how many times did a player average twenty points and five rebounds and shoot X percent from the field, or or maybe even though you'll use true shooting percentage, use something more advanced? And is the the scores get higher in the league, and they're now you know at their highest point since the mid '80s? That becomes increasingly difficult to make those comparisons because you're not accounting for pace most of the time. And even some of the advanced stats, even if you're looking at, you know, true shooting percentage again, or, you know, you're looking at combining that with usage, you're still also not accounting for the fact that league average is, we're all at the most efficient time in NBA history. So league average is higher. You have to be that much better than, you know, someone was 15 years ago to provide the same level of value as they did now, since there's still the same number of wins to go around. So just be very careful with like, you know, if you look at this group, oh, 90% of them were all-stars. That doesn't mean that the player is necessarily an all-star this year. How um, do we do it instead? I mean, that's where I think it's valuable to look at stats that are league adjusted. So, you know, PR, box plus minus, uh, RPM, all of these by definition, in PR's case, it's 15. In the case of RPM or box plus minus, they're going to add up to zero at the league level. But that they're always that constant level year over year as opposed to something that, you know, even like in even an advanced stat like true shooting percentage, it fluctuates from year to year. You could look at points gained. <laughs> yes, that also has that quality. That's some other issues, but it has that quality. That wraps us up, your holiday edition of Locked on NBA.